having read hundreds of fantasy books and having written three of my own, I figure it's time that I let you know about my top 10 favorite fantasy books. For each book that I'm going through in this list, I will be giving a quick description of what the book is about, trying to keep it spoiler free, then what I liked about the book, and then lastly, what writing lessons the book taught me. This list is totally subjective. Everything on here is my own opinion. So if one of your favorite books is not on this list, I might not have read it, or maybe I did read it and it just didn't strike a chord with me for whatever reason. I legitimately spent hours trying to come up with this top 10 list and it'll probably continue to evolve. But with all those caveats out of the way, let's get into book number 10. Percy Jackson and the Battle of the Labyrinth is the fourth book in the Percy Jackson series. And if you're not familiar with this book, it is basically about a young boy in New York who discovers that he is the son of the Greek god Poseidon. And he discovers that all the Greek gods are real and that all the monsters are real as well. Now, the Percy Jackson series is one of those series that I just read time and time again when I was a kid. And the reason why I've picked this book in particular, this fourth book here, is because I think it just captures everything that makes this series great. There is this quest through a really deadly landscape, this landscape of the labyrinth, this maze that extends through the entirety of the world underground. There is a great sense of camaraderie between all of the different characters in the crew that are setting off on this quest between Percy and Annabeth and Grover and all the others who are kind of assembled into this motley gang, if you will. And yet it also manages to keep all of the humor and all the fun of the series, all of this adventuring excitement, while also kind of maturing it to a bit more of a deeper and a darker place. And through all of it, you really are experiencing this journey of this young boy, Percy, who is going on this, you know, discovery, this journey of discovery, trying to find out who he is and what his place is in the world. And that kind of brings me to the writing lesson that this book taught me, which is that if you want to create a re-readable story, something that people love coming back to read over and over again, like myself, I think it's really important to have a cast of characters who you just enjoy spending time with. Next, we have Mort by Terry Pratchett. Mort is, I think, the fourth or fifth book in the Discworld series, which is this satirical fantasy series uh, about this land that is totally flat and circular and travels on the back of a turtle that floats through space. And that kind of gives you, if you're not familiar with this amazing series, a really good snapshot of what it's about. It's a series that is at once incredibly funny, but also extremely poignant. For me, Mort really just captures the spirit of this series really well. It's basically about this young guy called Mort who can't really find a, a job, but one person does take a chance on him. Although it's not exactly a person because the entity that gives, job, uh, that gives Mort his first job is death, the anthropomorphic uh, personification of the end of all things. And death basically takes Mort underneath his wing and Mort becomes an apprentice to death. He helps him out on his various missions as he goes about, you know, serving people's souls and sending them off to whatever comes after the life that they've just had. And this is incredible because at once is it hilarious and extremely funny, which maybe sounds strange because this is a book about death, but just the fact that he is like, you know, this sort of affable skeleton who needs an apprentice to help him out and sometimes makes mistakes and has, in a way, a really dry sense of humor um, is extremely funny. The situations that they get into is hilarious, but also what it does is it kind of lures you in with this funniness and this, uh, this humor. And then you realize as you get into the story that, oh, this is actually making some really deep points here about 
you know, our discomfort with death, which is ultimately the, you know, the biggest kind of human fear in a sense. And the story begins in a way where you think it's just going to be sort of this fun comical farce, but as more it becomes more and more resentful of the fact that people have to die, and as he gets more and more power as the apprentice of death, it kind of starts to scale up to this really epic scale where all of a sudden it's not just this fun little adventure anymore, but it's literally the stake of everyone that has ever lived um, is kind of, you know, at play in this book. And I just loved it. I love the fact that this book, which is really short, I mean, look at that. It's quite a tiny book. You can rip through this thing. I love the fact that this is able to just do it all. It's able to be extremely funny. It's able to have a absolutely racing, suspense-filled plot. It has characters that you just love. The character of death in particular is just incredible. And Mort is extremely relatable as well. And I think the writing lesson that I took from this book is that you can do it all. You can write a book that is funny. You can write a book that has amazing characters, that has a racing plot, that also explores these really deep topics that leave you thinking long after you close the final pages. And also, I really don't like this cover either. I wish I had a nicer cover for this one, but this was just the first edition that I could find in the store. And I really, really wanted to read some Pratchett in my life. So I put it there. And yeah, I guess the reason why I really wanted to read this book in particular was because I had just had someone pass away who was pretty close to me. And having this book that sort of explored all of these themes of mortality and death and everything actually really helped me with it and kind of allowed me to find a level of peace and um, to move on with my life afterwards. So that's another reason why this book is amazing. Last Stand of Dead Man is the eighth book in the Skullduggery Pleasant series. The series, if you're not familiar with it, is about a 400-year-old magical Irish skeleton detective called Skullduggery Pleasant. That's him right there. And throughout this series, these books get progressively more and more epic until the point where we reach Last Stand of Dead Men, where basically there are just tons and tons of magicians at war with each other and it's barely being prevented from spilling over into the mortal world. And this all converges on this one city of Rawhaven, where it's basically this sort of sanctuary for sorcerers, but all of the Irish sorcerers are holed up inside this thing and pretty much the sorcerers from everywhere else in the world are trying to get in, trying to take it over and trying to bring them down. Basically, imagine like the most epic, you know, Avengers style crossover between all of these different magicians, all with their own unique powers, all with their own incredibly rich and detailed backstories. And now they're sort of in this civil war fighting against each other. In pretty much every way, it's kind of like a better version of Captain America's Civil War, which is a movie that I absolutely love. One of the big things I admire about the Skaldorgi Pleasant series in particular is the fact that I have been reading this thing for well over 10 years at this point. There are like 15 books in the series in total. There's like a series of nine and then there's another series of six that's come out afterwards. And they continue to be incredible. Um, but the reason I picked this one book out of all of them is because I just feel like it pays off so many things that were leading up to it in the series. There's, you know, seven books that come before this. By this point, there are hundreds of different named characters who you all feel really attached to in different ways. And in this book, Derek Landy just basically like takes all of them and just like smashes them together in a way that's incredibly satisfying. And then the place where it ends at is just stellar as well. In terms of the writing lesson that I took away from this, it would probably be that you should never tell yourself or never let readers think that a character is safe. There are some huge deaths in this book, which I won't spoil, where you just don't expect them to come at all. 
and the bravery that Derek Landy has to just kill off these characters who you feel really attached to, who, you know, you feel like they could be around for a long time and he just, nah, kills them straight off, is actually, like, very, very cool. Because as a reader, while it is, like, bad, and <laughs> while there are a lot of deaths in this book that I wish didn't happen, it tells me that I'm in a world of stakes. I'm in a world where there are consequences, where people can die, and therefore my suspense and engagement as a reader is much higher than it would be if everyone was safe all the time. The Name in the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. This is a classical coming-of-age fantasy tale about this young boy whose parents are murdered, and he goes off to kind of, you know, initially live as a street orphan, and then he manages to get into this sort of magical university, set very much in a typical fantasy world. And from the description, you might be thinking, Okay, there's nothing particularly original or exciting here, but that's kind of, in a sense, the beauty of this novel. See, Patrick Rothfuss tells this with such a, a lyrical and poetic prose that makes this whole thing feel ancient, but yet timeless and modern at the same time. And I don't know how he does it. He just takes stuff that shouldn't be that interesting or engaging. There's one scene where the main character is fighting a dragon and there is one scene where the main character is playing like a violin style instrument i think it might be a lute or something in order to get into this uh this band that plays at this particularly exclusive tavern and on the surface you would think okay well the dragon scene is going to be way more climactic and interesting than him playing his lute that's not the case at all the music scene is so much more suspenseful and tense and exciting. And that's not because the dragon scene is poorly written. It's just because Patrick Rothfuss really understands how to, how to get in a character's head, how to put you in that character's head, and how to make you feel an incredible amount of suspense and tension, even in these small, seemingly inconsequential moments. So the writing lesson here, I think, is the fact that it's possible to make anything interesting and captivating. Book number six, and we're halfway through our list here, is The Heroes by Joe Abercrombie. The Heroes is the best book I've ever read about war. Essentially, we follow two different uh, armies in this medieval fantasy world where they are converging on this nameless hill in the middle of nowhere to fight a battle over something that no one really cares about. And over the course of the next three days, you see the point of views of dozens of characters across these two armies as they clash. And... There truly are no heroes or any villains in this, kind of hence where the title is coming from. And when I read this, it was just mind-blowing to think that you could do this, to think that you could write a book where just everyone was kind of equally messed up, everyone was equally struggling from what the other characters were doing, and to have that level of kind of grit and realism in the fighting, to make war not seem like this glorious thing, um, although some characters try to interpret it that way, but rather to show it for what it is, this... A thing where you're dragging yourself through mud for days on end only to get stabbed by some nameless soldier and you, you know maybe you stab the soldier yourself but you don't even care what it's about and this book is just so gritty and brutal and realistic and it's really everything great about grim dark fantasy it doesn't shy away from the harsh realities of what humans are willing to do to each other the writing lesson i've taken away from this is how you can use different point of views to really create this sense of a gray, morally ambiguous world. My favorite chapter from this is when you kind of get into this big battle scene halfway through the book, you start in the perspective of one character's head and then they get killed by another character, you follow them around for a bit, then they get killed by another character and it keeps going on and on. And it just creates like this incredible 
Uh, Joe has this incredible ability to make characters feel instantly real and instantly so three-dimensional, even the space of only a couple of pages of following them, that each of those deaths feel very, very difficult and very tragic. And Joe is just a fantastic character writer. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've taken away from this book as well, is just that ability to create such complex, realistic characters to the point where when I finish reading a Joe Abercrombie book, it's hard to read other fiction books because all the other characters just feel a bit hollow by comparison. I also got to interview Joe Abercrombie a few weeks ago on this very YouTube channel, which was incredibly cool for me. I will link to that in the description down below. I, I sort of feel like, you know, characters are the most important part of a book. You know, sometimes I hear people talk about, you know, I like the characters, but I didn't like the setting. So this is a bad book. To me, it's like if the characters are good, then it's a good book. Book number five, Red Seas Under Red Skies by Scott Lynch. This book is the sequel to The Lies of Locke Lamora, which is basically Ocean's Eleven set in a fantasy version of Venice. In this second book, Locke and his partner in crime, Jean, are basically trying to pull off a heist from this big casino, but it's set in a fantasy world. And it's really cool. Like, if you love heist movies, this is just an absolute pinnacle of the genre as far as I'm concerned. This book was such a huge inspiration for me writing The Thunder Heist, which is a heist story set in this nautical-themed world, very similar to how this world is, you know, largely set around these cities based on the sea. And I just love the, the banter between Locke and his comrades and the, the kind of ways in which they are presented with these impossible missions that then they have to somehow come up with solutions for. And the way that they do that is really creative, really fun. The writing lesson that I learned from this is just the importance of having a fun world. Like, yes, this is a very brutal and uh, probably not a world I would necessarily want to be in, but it's just got this kind of like capricious joy to it. It's this Renaissance, Italy, nautical, Venice-style world, and it's just so much fun to spend time in. And I think that was something that I was really trying to create with the Thunder Heist as well. Similar to this, it's set at this city where it's just all these ships that are bound together to create this floating uh, city ship. And it's about a heist crew basically trying to steal this magical device that uh, kind of draws energy from lightning. This was a hugely inspired by everything Lies of Locke Lamora related. And as such, I have an incredible amount of fondness for that series. The Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson. This is the third book in the original Mistborn trilogy. And if you're not familiar with Mistborn, it is basically about these uh, magicians who can ingest different types of metal and then burn them inside themselves. And depending on which metal they're burning, they have different magical abilities, such as the ability to kind of push on other metal, which allows them to telekinetically kind of leap over cities or the ability to kind of like influence other people's emotions or slow down time around them. Basically, it just has this incredibly cool magic system. And this was this series was probably the first time that I really read a magic system that wasn't just like, and Gandalf waved his staff and these things happened and I'm not going to explain why they happened. This series really kind of treats magic as this mathematical scientific thing. And I love it because it means that you can actually set up these really cool reveals where the characters combine different magic systems in a way that is really unexpected, but makes total sense in hindsight. The reason why I picked the third book in this series is because I just think it absolutely nails the ending. There's so many fantasy series which either don't have an ending and readers are just left dragging, or they kind of have an unsatisfying ending, and this series is not the case. The last book for me is the most satisfying because it kind of wraps up all of the different conflicts in a way that is immensely satisfying and does the thing I was saying earlier, where 
you are told all the pieces of the magic system up front, but then you just didn't, don't expect the way in which they are combined to resolve the story at the end. The story also goes to this incredibly epic scale as well. And just that sense of kind of transcendence and the epic immensity of where this story goes to at the end was really mind blowing for me when I read it and hugely, hugely inspired me as an author. The lesson I take away from this as a writer is hard magic systems are awesome. And by hard magic systems, I mean magic systems where the reader really understands the rules because that allows you to do things like what Sanderson does in this book, where you're given all the pieces up front, but you don't quite understand how they're assembled. And then he takes them all, merges them together, and you realize the answer to the story's problems was in front of you the whole time. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire by J.K. Rowling. Harry Potter is probably my favorite fantasy series out there. You know, I've mentioned before, there's a couple of childhood classics on this list, like Percy Jackson and Scarlet Oregon Pleasant, which I read heaps over and over again as a kid, and I still read them to this day. But Harry Potter is probably, you know, at the top of that list. I've read this series at least maybe nine or ten times, and I love every single book in this series. And probably the two that I found it hardest to pick between was Deathly Hallows, because I think it just nails the ending, and Goblet of Fire. But the reason I went Goblet of Fire is because I just think it, it captures the essence of what this series is about. I feel like I've said that a lot today, but with these big series, that's sort of what you have to do. It is a book that is incredibly fun and entertaining. You know, it's all these different magical schools coming together for this sporting tournament. Like, how cool is that as a concept? It's also just got so many great learning montages where Harry, Hermione, and Ron are just trying to prepare for the different tasks in the Triwizard Tournament. Um, but also, it kind of blends in a bit of darkness to the series. And in many ways, it's the turning point where the series goes from this fun, lighthearted children's adventure to actually this uh, really difficult, uh, dangerous, and intense struggle between Harry and Voldemort. Obviously, this is the book where Voldemort kind of comes back. I hope that's not a spoiler. I'm sure everyone is familiar with Harry Potter. Um, so yeah, I just love the fact that this series, this book is kind of the turning point. In many ways, it kind of reflects the arc of when you are coming of age as a young person. You know, you kind of have the innocent childhood years and then puberty sort of hits and everything gets more complicated and everything. And this book kind of extrapolates that on a huge scale. The writing lesson I took away from this is how to integrate subplots throughout your story. This book is a lot thicker than previous Harry Potter books, and that's because there's so many different plot threads weaving through it. If you want to hear me go into this in more detail, I made a video many, many years ago uh, about subplots in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. This was actually my first video that I ever posted to the channel, so my voice is like really high-pitched, and yeah, the production is kind of interesting, um, but that kind of goes into the subplots point in more detail. I will link to that in the description down below. But the main point with that is that Rowling just has this knack for in every single chapter kind of hitting all the different subplots in a way that makes the story continuously feel like it's progressing and it adds all these complexities to it. And also all those different subplots give you something different to focus on every time you reread it, which is probably why it feels so rereadable because there's so many details and it's just rich in all these different things going on. Number two, The Wisdom of Crowds by Joe Abercrombie. This is the end to, I think, my favorite fantasy trilogy I've ever read. You know, I just said before this, I think Harry Potter is probably my favorite series, but boy, the Age of Madness trilogy gets really damn close. And I'm sure I'm going to reread it eventually. And when I do, maybe that reread might even take it above where Harry Potter is in my head. Basically, the Age of Madness trilogy, it takes place in the same world that the heroes takes place in. 
this gritty, realistic medieval fantasy world. But what is particularly cool about this trilogy is that it is set in this industrializing time. So now all of a sudden, you know, kings and queens aren't necessarily the ones with power. Now the ones with power are the bankers or the merchants who own these factories. And as industrialization takes off across this land, we start to see revolts from the workers very closely uh, mirroring a lot of stuff that happened in our own world when you think about the French Revolution, for example. And this last book kind of explores the question of what happens when the revolutionaries take over and now become the ones in charge? You know, they have built their whole identity and purpose around saying the system is wrong. What actually happens when they become the ones who are in charge of the system? And yeah, this is this is a trilogy I would actually like to review in some more detail on this channel. Uh, I actually had a chat with Joe about this very same trilogy, which was mostly just me gushing about how cool it is. And I just love it. Like every single character is so incredibly complicated and nuanced. And there's times when you absolutely love a character for what they're doing. And then there's times where they just make horrible, horrible, yet totally realistic and justifiable decisions, which take them down another path. The big writing lesson I took away from this is the power of change and of creating compelling character arcs. There are characters in this third book here who at the very beginning of the series, I despised. And there are characters in this book that at the very beginning of the series, I loved. And it's really interesting how Joe has this ability to kind of take the characters you love, slowly corrupt them until they become characters you hate. And then he does the same thing with characters that you initially hate as well. And it's not a one for one thing. You can't just say, oh, I hate this character. They're being a jerk at the start of the series. They'll be good at the end. No, sometimes they're just jerks the whole way through or they get killed in a brutal fashion earlier on. But I think it's an incredibly realistic and compelling way to explore the ways in which characters change as a result of their desires. And this whole notion of creating complicated characters is something I talked about in my video about Daemon Targaryen from House of the Dragon. The reason why I love that character is just because there's all these complexities and nuances to the him, and sometimes you love him and sometimes you hate him. And that's exactly what every single character in this series goes through. And my number one favorite fantasy book, Words of Radiance by Brandon Sanderson. Well, you know, I've said it a lot of times on this channel, Sanderson is my favorite author. So maybe this is no surprise if you've been watching my videos for a while. Words of Radiance. Wow, where do I even begin with this book? Basically, this is the second book in the Stormlight Archive series. This kind of like massive epic fantasy saga uh, about this land where every couple of days, this huge storm rolls across, devastating everything in its path. And basically everything in this uh, world has been built to adapt to these storms. And there are all these different interesting magic systems in it. There's all these different races and different countries and all these different people uh, and all this lore within it as well. But I didn't hugely connect with The Way of Kings, which is the first book in this series, when I started it off. And I was really reluctant to dive into Words of Radiance, which is the second one. The first book had just been very long, you know, over a thousand pages, a bit ponderous at times. And while it had a good ending that really pulled it off, I was kind of skeptical and a bit nervous to go into the second book. And boy, was I glad I did. Words of Radiance just has a couple of incredible scenes in there which make the book for me. There's one scene in particular, a fight scene set in a, an arena in the second book. I won't spoil it for you, but if you know, if you have read this book, you'll know what I'm talking about. And this scene gave me like literal goosebumps when I was reading it. It's just an incredible 
payoff where a character who has every reason to hate another character basically steps in to save his skin. And the amount of like kind of honor and integrity and courage that he shows in that moment is just incredible. And it's this huge stand up and cheer moment. Like I said, I just got goosebumps from it. And I just love the progression of the magic and how you learn about all these different types of, yeah, powers throughout the book, the history, the lore. This for me is just the best epic fantasy series that's going around these days. And I think it's gonna be well remembered as one of the classic epic fantasy series ever written when it gets completed. If not, maybe the best. The world, the characters, the plotting, just everything about it is absolutely perfect to me. The writing lesson I would take away from this is probably just the power of that one scene, of having everything in your book build to a incredibly momentous and important occasion that interweaves and kind of knots together all these different character threads and arcs into one pivotal explosive moment. Typically in a story, that's the climax and the climax of this is incredible, don't get me wrong. But really I think the best scene is that arena fight that comes a lot earlier in the book. And the fact that it just sort of comes at like a nothing moment in the book, like I don't think from memory, I might be wrong here, I don't think it's a midpoint, it's definitely not a climax, it's just sort of a scene within the book. And the fact that that can just surprise you and hit you out of nowhere like that is something that I really aspire to kind of try to create in my own novels. So I think the big writing lesson there is the power of those stand up and cheer scenes where you have all of this build up and then you just pay off a character's internal struggles and something in the external world and another character's arc. And you just take these four or five different things and you just explode them in this incredibly pivotal moment. So that is my top 10 fantasy books list.